And uh, would you stand again for the reading of the word? We are going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. We get to make the transition. We've been in chapter 11 for two months. Uh, that's, you know, this, this book would have been read as a letter uh, to, to the church. And it would have been read in about 45 minutes. We're taking about a year to go through this. And we just spent two months. You know, Kyle's a little long-winded. So we just spent about two months in chapter 11. And we get to make the jump to chapter 12. Um, so we're going to be in verses 1 through 3. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And it'll be on the screen behind me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the word of the Lord. Amen and amen. So, <laughs> is that just a little voice over there? Amen. Um, so to keep with the sports metaphor, we just came out of chapter 11. Chapter 11 was, uh, in my mind, it was kind of this uh, locker room, you know, halftime speech. Uh, the coach gets up and he's like, hey, look, we're down. We're getting beat out there. Um, but he, he gives this kind of rousing speech. And it, you know, it takes a twist in the middle of it, but he, he starts there. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, right? You just kind of see the room kind of going, yeah, yeah, that is right. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Enoch was taken Up so that he should not see death. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. By faith, he went to the land of promise. By faith, Sarah herself conceived or received power to conceive. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. You know, the room is, is buzzing now. There's you know, high fives going on. People are getting pumped up. He says, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. And he's like, I don't even have time to go through Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead from resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. And they were stoned and they were sawn into... See, this is taking a, a little bit different turn. They were sawn, in, or sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. 
They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. You can see this. He's, he's, he's building some case. And it's a little bit of a different type locker room speech. But it's, it's, it's a speech to get across this point. That this cloud of witnesses, this cloud of witnesses were faithful, but they were flawed as we, we saw last week. But what they did is they ran the race with endurance in living and in dying, in victories and perceived defeats. They endured, so be encouraged. This great cloud of witnesses, you know that word witnesses is translated as martyrs? This great cloud of martyrs. And not all of them were were bodily martyred, right? You've got uh, someone like uh, Moses who kind of was a martyr to the culture, right? He said, I'm going to lay down all the pleasures of vi- that this world has to offer. And he would have been privy to any of them. He said, I'm going to lay that down. I'm going to die to myself. It's a self-denial. It's a self-death to the culture. But this is the group of people that you're surrounded with. People that have gone before you. So chapter 12, as we enter in, is this big crescendo of all the previous chapters, chapter 1 through 11. It's this huge crescendo into this, this big therefore moment, this therefore transition. And you'd imagine him after chapter 11, right, to go, so look to your forefathers and the, the mothers that have gone before you. Try to be like them, right? You'd imagine him to go there. Try to study the words, but he, do- but he doesn't. He says this instead, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So the question I'm asking this morning is what does looking to Jesus accomplish? What does keeping our eyes on Jesus accomplish for our life? Because the author seems to think and seems to be really convinced that this is the main goal in all circumstances that we would keep our eyes on Jesus. This is our highest goal. So I believe what he's saying and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and what he's been trying to communicate can be summed up like this. Faith in Jesus gives us hope. That hope leads us to joy. And that joy furnishes us with endurance to persevere in suffering. If you know anything about this church, they're, they're experiencing a lot of persecution. Um, they're, they're a lot of cultural pressure to turn back to Judaism. And they're about to experience not just uh, that type of uh, persecution, but actual bodily persecution where, where many of them will lose their life because of their faith. So the, the writer of Hebrews is preparing the people of God for endurance. And that's the case that he's making to endure through suffering. So looking to Jesus, who is our hope, is the goal. He supplies us with faith needed to finish the race. And to finish the race, we need endurance, endurance to the end. But what are we enduring? And that's what we're going to talk a lot about today, what we're enduring. And we are enduring, you are enduring, I am enduring, suffering. And that's what he was, the author was communicating then. And that's the message to us now. So I really have one point this morning, if you're writing anything down. Looking to Jesus is how we endure suffering. It's how we last. It's the means in which 
we finish the race. And everyone in this room is suffering. Everyone, everyone is suffering. Everyone is suffering. There's different degrees, there's different scenarios, but everyone in this room is experiencing some degree of suffering, and there's all types. So we suffer in two main frameworks. We suffer because, one, we are victims of sin. This is one of the main reasons why we suffer. We are victims of sin. We live in a fallen world. We are continuously being sinned against. Every system, every relationship, every circumstance is disfigured or stained by sin. Do you feel that? Secondly, in the second framework in which we suffer, we suffer because we ourselves are sinners. Sin isn't something we do, but is the brokenness wrapped up in our human nature. We are both the victim and the perpetrator. We are both the victim and the perpetrator. This is why we suffer. I want to make a note in light of what we just sang about. Um, that if you are in Christ, neither one of those two things are your identity anymore. Can you say amen? Amen. Those are not our identity. You've been given a new name, a new way of living under King Jesus. We still battle with sin and suffering, but we do so as saints. That's the difference. Saints can be translated also as children of God. And I want to read to you uh, 1 John 3, 2, which gets at this point. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So in other words, he's saying, we are God's sons and daughters now, but we are not fully what we will be, which is like Jesus himself. Until he comes again, we need endurance, and we get endurance by looking to Jesus. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The writer of Hebrews tells us he's the author. He's the founder. He's the perfecter. He's the pioneer. He's the trailblazer. If you know it, turn to uh, John 1, John chapter 1, 1 through 5, and we'll get a good picture of who Jesus is as the author. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is who Jesus is. Hebrews 6.20 says that Jesus has gone as our forerunner. He's gone ahead of us as our forerunner. And, and, and that's, it's, it's a basic meaning that he has gone first. He was first. He's gone first. He's made a way where there was no way. He's showing us a better way. He's making all things new. He is making all things new. He's showing us what's possible. Before 1954, in the running community, uh, there was an agreement that it is impossible for a person to break the four-minute mile. Like, like, they thought that no human, 
is strong enough, fast enough to run and be sub four minutes on the, on the mile. But in 1954, Olympian Roger, Roger Bannister ran a whole mile in three minutes and 59 seconds. Pretty incredible, right? But do you know that now there are high schoolers that have beaten that record? And the guy that has the record currently ran it 20 seconds faster. The point is that Roger Bannister was the first. He was a forerunner. He showed what is possible. Somebody had to go first. Are there, are there any runners in here? Are there any marathoners in here? Anybody that runs a marathon? We had a lot of marathoners in the 9 a.m. This is more the casual group. But it's crazy. These people choose to run 26.2 miles. Gosh, that was genuinely funny. Uh, the, people choose to run 26.2 This is their decision to run 26.2 miles. It's a big deal. There was an incredible experiment done in, in 2019. And the question was, can a human being run a marathon in under two hours? Some of you may have saw this in the news. Many sports scientists did not think this was humanly possible. That just the, the equation of genetics and human effort and condition and climate, I mean, it just, they said it's just not possible. It, they predicted that maybe like by the mid-2000s we'll be able to do it, but, but not currently. World-famous Kenyan marathoner Elihud Kipchoge signed up for this experiment. And it was a stage experiment in 2019. But he completed 26.2 miles in one hour, 59 minutes, and 40 seconds. Meaning that he ran four minute, 35 second miles consecutively for 26.2 miles. That's 15% slower than Roger Bannister's record-breaking four-minute mile. That's, that's insane. That's insanely fast. And he did 26 of them in a row. The amount of pain uh, that he would have endured, that he endured, is just, it's incredible. That pace would have caused cardiac arrest for um, uh, many, even elite athletes. It's just an insane pace. But he did it. And although this wasn't an official race, uh, it was an experiment, you get the idea that Kipchoge and Bannister went ahead as literal forerunners, showing us in future generations what's possible. It's pretty powerful. But that's just running. That's just running. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about life. We're talking about eternal life this morning. So Jesus, the founder of perfecter and forerunner of our faith is who we look to. He shows us how to live. He shows us what's possible. We can have hope in the middle of this life because we know who the author is. Like we said, we know the one who holds the pen. We know who's writing the story. So we have faith um, because Christ has gone before us to show us how to live, how to run the race. He's a great high priest. So open your text to, um, if you don't have it already, to Hebrews 12. Let's look at that first verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings 
so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He's showing us how to do it. He's showing us what we need to look at. And he says, this author says, lay aside everything that will hold you down, everything that will hold you back. So for Kipchoge, that ran the sub two-hour marathon, we need to know this. In order to do that, they had to construct um, the most ideal running conditions. Um, There was a team of runners, like the best runners in the world, that were running ahead of him, taking turns, drafting, so that he would not feel the, the draft uh, from running at that speed. There was a flat six-mile circuit. The weather conditions were perfect for running. The altitude was right. Water and energy snacks were uh, supplied to him by bicyclists. They were keeping him fueled, energized. He didn't even have to deviate over to the water table. They were keeping him focused running. There was actually a truck that went in front of him that it shot Uh, It projected a laser down in front of him so that he knew if he wanted to to achieve his goal, he had to stay up, keep up with that laser. Can you imagine the agony of this situation? But I'm, I'm, I'm saying that to say this, that even the slightest hindrance would have thrown him off. He was just a few seconds before he'd go over and he wouldn't have achieved the goal. So if we apply this same concept to our lives, that's that running experiment, but if we apply this same concept to our lives, is this how we think about our spiritual life, our walk with Jesus, our living? Is this how, do we apply the same kind of tactics? Or are we more loose? Weights, sins, God forgives. It's all good. Are we more accommodating to those things? The author says, lay aside every weight and sin. So there's two different things here. Um, he's saying it's, 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 it's insane to try to run this race if you have extra weight on you and if you're accommodating sin. It, it, you just won't last. You won't make it. So this idea of sin, we could probably all get behind the idea that we shouldn't go on sinning, Right? We know that. The Bible's pretty clear. Um, 1 John 3, uh, 5 through 9 gives us a really clear perspective on this. You know that he appeared to take away sins. Jesus appeared to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. These are some big statements. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep, in, keep on sinning because he has been born of God. This is what the Bible says about sin. Sin is bad. Not recommended biblically. Weights, on the other hand, they might not inherently be bad. Because sin is inherently bad. So we know that it's not good. But weights, on the other hand, might not be inherently bad. But they will keep you from running well. 
and in some circumstances, keep you from finishing at all. We see this in Matthew 13 in the parable of the sower. It says, As for the seed sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The weight of the world chokes out this seed of the gospel. So weights can be dangerous because they can be good things used by our enemy to cause us to stumble. Here's an example, and I think maybe this is, there's a, there's a lot of examples that I could use here, but I think this is maybe the foremost in our culture, is the tyranny of busyness. The tyranny of busyness. This is a weight in our culture. This is a heavy, heavy weight. The pace of our culture is a heavy, heavy weight. Always working, our always achieving culture is a weight. It is a weight. But it's deceptive, right? Um, Is working hard bad? No. Is, is, Is working so much that you're not present for your spouse and your, and your children? Is that bad? Probably. Is it wrong for your kids to be in sports or dance or any extracurricular activities? No. It's great. It's a lot to be learned in those scenarios. A lot of fun to be had. Is it wrong to be so involved, though, that there are no evenings available in your week for meals? or small gatherings of believers to practice the way of Jesus together? Probably. If you have no evenings available. I don't know how it is at your house, but I don't know how long you can keep saying, if we can just get past this week, our schedule's gonna open up. Anybody said that this week? (laughs) If we can just get past this week, I think our schedule will open up, we'll have room. Um, if we can just get past this semester, this is a big semester for us, you know? We've got a lot going on. Man, if we can just get past this season, you know, is it, they, you know, they went to finals this year, so we're excited about that. Once this project is over, I can really focus. Once the deal goes through, you, you get the idea. When will we realize that we do not live in some neutral benign world of opportunity, but rather we live in a world and culture that is controlled by the one who wants to steal from you, who wants to kill you, who wants to destroy the work of God in you. This is the world that we live in. So weights are subversive because it's probably going to be something in your life that isn't inherently bad that's keeping you from following Jesus well. And you cannot discover these weights by asking, is it good or is it bad? You cannot ask that question to discover it. What you have to ask is, is this helping me run? Is this helping my family run? That's a whole different categorization, right? And that's the question that we need to be asking, is what we are doing, is our schedule, is what we participate in, the rhythms of our life, is it helping us run or is it weight that is keeping us from the pace of God?
whether it be too fast or too slow. Some will be weights to one, and some will be weights to others. A temptation, though, here would be to rightly identify a personal weight and then assume that it is a universal weight. That would be legalism, and that's not what we're talking about. We're all fighting different battles, so it's important for each one of us to examine our own life. However, from my my experience, I think most of us here in McKinney are just simply too busy for the spiritual life. It sounds like an oversimplification, and in some cases it, it probably is, but I think we have constructed a life that does not accommodate the spiritual life. I know when we roll out practice groups or formation groups, or you hear messages like this, and, and, and teachers are like, hey, look to Jesus, or put yourself, posture yourself before Jesus, you're like, okay, yeah, when, where, and I'll, I'll see if we can fit it in. Friends, don't be tempted to try and add Jesus to your life. You cannot add Jesus to a full life already, a filled up life. He won't be shared. He must have your whole life, not just parts of it. And if you want him to heal your suffering, you have to submit your suffering to him. You have to surrender. Let me ask this question. How do you know if someone is going to run a marathon? They'll tell you about it. (laughs) Why? Because it's all consuming. It's all consuming. The training is intense. Your schedule is surrendered to it. Your diet is surrendered. No Twinkies. Your days leading up to it are centered around training for it. No one casually adds a marathon to their life. No one casually adds a marathon to your life, to their life. What are you guys doing for Memorial Day? You know, I think we're going to grill and hang out. Maybe run a marathon. Nobody says that. Nobody says that. Because it's all consuming. It, it, It demands training. It demands your attention. It demands your time. We cannot casually add following Jesus. I think in our culture, since we have a culture that is generally comforted by many things, we can, in a way, just add Jesus. Our life is very comfortable. But when you begin to add what this church is going through persecution in, uh, when people start dying for their faith, Casual Christianity is gone. There is, there is no one, no one signing up for that. So be mindful that the climate that we live in, the culture that we live in, this moment in history is uniquely, is a unique lullaby to the spiritual life that, that can lull you to sleep and you would not be aware of reality. That's why it's really important, Jake, you mentioned just our brothers and sisters around the world, to understand the Bible, to understand Jesus, to understand following him, you have to have a global perspective. It can't just be here, McKinney. 
job, saving, 401k, disposable income. It, it can't just be here. But you have to let your life be exposed to the globe, exposed to people all over the world. And it, it will change your perspective. It will change your perspective. So we live in a fallen world. This fallen world is trying to keep you from following Jesus at all costs. The enemy partners with your indwelling sin nature and the pace of this world to weigh you down. This is a type of suffering that the author of Hebrews... So what is it about looking to Jesus that helps us endure suffering? It's his own suffering that the author points us to. Let's read verses 2 and 3 there, if you have it in front of you. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The author says, look at the suffering of Christ. Look at what he endured. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The shame, the pain. And I want to make sure we know what Jesus had joy in here. Was he joyful about the cross itself? He was not. We know this because of Jesus' belabored prayers in Gethsemane. May this cup pass from me. Father, if there's another way. What Jesus has joy in is certainly not the excruciating pain and humiliation of the cross. It says he despised the shame. The cross was a shameful way to die. The crimes were shameful. The process was shameful. And there was zero cultural honor to be received in any of it. It was not a hero's death. And it was not even a common man's death. The goal of Roman crucifixion was not just death, but also dishonor. The disgrace and death on a cross degraded the dignity of a person so much that there was an ancient Roman statute that prevented a Roman citizen from crucifixion. They could be executed in other ways, but not crucifixion. And in the Jewish tradition, we know that being executed on the tree was linked to the curse that came through Adam and Eve disobeying God in the garden and taking from the tree. Therefore, we know through the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law that to die on the tree symbolized the, the curse on the whole earth. Paul highlights this in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. So we endure this present suffering by looking to Jesus, the innocent Son of God, who suffered a reprehensible criminal's death consuming the whole wrath of God on the cross, becoming a curse himself in our place so that we might experience the eternal blessings of the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus didn't take joy in the cross itself, but what was set before him. And what was set before him was this, the accomplishment of the Father's will. That's what he was taking joy in. That's what he was taking joy in, was the accomplishment of the Father's will, the rescue mission in full swing. Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane didn't stop at, may this cup pass for me, right? He says, nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. Jesus delighted in doing the Father's will because he trusts the Father. So Jesus experiences joy, not in suffering, but during suffering. Do you see the difference there? We don't serve a sadistic God. 
He doesn't want to just inflict pain on his people, but in his sovereignty, pain, resistance, trials, discipline, we'll see next week, and even suffering, producing us what cannot be gained in any other way. James 1, 2-4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Does it stop there? It doesn't. What does that trial give them? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We take joy in trial for what the trial or what the suffering accomplishes. God is not asking you for naive optimism. He's not asking for an artificial positivity. He knows that we live in a broken world and we are broken ourselves, as we were reminded of last week. Jesus sees that and understands what we are going through. He sees our suffering. And the Bible actually says that suffering produces in something that cannot be gained in any other way. There is value to your suffering. God does not cause all suffering, but he certainly will use it. He will not waste it. But he invites us to see, it, see suffering in a different way. We see this in Philippians 3, 10 through 11. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death that by any, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I, 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 I know the power of his resurrection because I share in his suffering. I know the power of resurrection by suffering. So we can rejoice in suffering for what it accomplishes. God uses suffering to conform us to Christ's image. Suffering is the way of Jesus. Therefore, is the means by which we get to grow and mature into his likeness. Charles Spurgeon says, I've learned to love the wave that casts me against the rock of ages. Isn't that a perspective on suffering? I've learned to love the wave that casts me against the rock of ages. So we get to follow Jesus as an example of someone who trusts the Father in all situations. But we also see that suffering produces something in us. So Jesus, joyfully submitting to God in the midst of suffering, demonstrates how to endure and how to better understand its purposes in our life. We can even come to value suffering and not disdain it. Thanks for giving us a little extra time this morning, but I'll wrap up with this. We might not always understand our particular sufferings and why God would allow something to happen. Have you experienced that? A suffering that you just, you really don't understand. Maybe you're in the middle of that right now. I don't, I don't understand the shootings. I don't understand genocide or human trafficking. It's hard for us to find the, the meaning of suffering caused by cancer or a slow terminal disease, the pain of losing a loved one, broken marriages. But maybe your suffering isn't one of those things. Maybe you've not experienced any of those things. It's not as acute or obvious as that. 
Michael Inlet gives us uh, another option. This is a more general reality. He says this, that the mundane challenges of life form a wearying mosaic of suffering that can erode our joy and confidence in the Lord. The mundane challenges form a wearying mosaic of suffering. Anybody there? Anybody in the mundane challenge world? Anybody have a kid that sucks their finger and brings a sickness home every week? Anybody had not great sleep the last three nights in a row? These are just mundane things. Anybody have a, an unruly coworker or a, a mean boss or the car? Is your car broken? Do you need to fix your car? These are, these are mundane. These are not life-altering, but they're cumulatively powerful. Everyone is suffering in some way. It's not important to... Jesus doesn't do this. He doesn't assign different values. But we are all, because of sin, suffering. Do you know that even trying to avoid suffering is a type of suffering itself? We naively spend much of our time trying to avoid it in a myriad of ways. When you feel the reality of the pain or the fear, um, maybe it's internally, maybe it's externally, but when you feel that sneaking in, what's your move? What do you turn to when faced with suffering? I want you to ask yourself that. Is it distraction? Do you attempt to ignore suffering? Do you turn your eyes to some type of American therapy like Shopping therapy or eating, maybe you just turn to eating, traveling, endlessly scrolling as a way to distract entertaining yourself. Or, or do you take another route and try to avoid pain by becoming an expert on it? Does researching worst case scenarios give you a sense of control? If I can know everything about it, I can avoid it. I need to know more. I need more information, more information, more information. You're actually trying to avoid suffering by doing this. Ever spend any time on WebMD? Got a little rash and all of a sudden you got some, something from the African jungle or something. Trying to avoid. If I can just contain my fear, pain. Henry Nouwen, um, he writes on loneliness but he's writing on it in the sense of the suffering that it brings. And so I want to read this to you. Um, This is from his book, The Wounded Healer. He says this, The more I think about suffering, the more I think that the wound of suffering is actually like the Grand Canyon, a deep incision in the surface of our existence that has become an inexhaustible source of beauty and self-understanding. Therefore, I'd like to voice loudly and clearly that what might seem unpopular and maybe even disturbing. The Christian way of life does not take away our suffering. It protects it and cherishes it as a precious gift. We know that this world is not as it should be. This service has been a gift to me to be able to lament with you and to worship with you in spite of it, to hear that we should look to Jesus, but we know that this world isn't as it should be. And because of sin, to be human is to suffer. 
as we go through our Bible, we also see that suffering is central to the Christian life. Therefore, looking to Christ offers us the only true comfort and understanding needed to endure until the end. Every other comfort, every other encouragement, every other explanation is either a half-truth or our sinful attempt to escape this momentary affliction. If you proclaim to follow Jesus this morning, but, but do not continually turn your eyes towards Christ, you are destined to still suffer, but suffer in confusion and doubt and be comforted only by the fleeting pleasures of this world. So my ask is that you would look to Christ and that you would allow him to comfort you. You would acknowledge that you are to some degree suffering and you might not be in an intense season right now, but you are suffering. And there's a lot of things that you're doing in your day to avoid it, to mitigate it. But the Bible calls us to face it, acknowledge it, but turn to Jesus in order to endure through to the end, run the race well. Are you encouraged by that? Jesus wants to comfort you. He doesn't come in and try to fix everything. He wants to comfort you so that you might grow. He is, God is a good father. And next week we're gonna get to talk about the discipline of the Lord and how all this works together. But he is a good father and he wants to comfort you. He loves you more than you could even imagine. Let's pray. Um, Father, we come uh, humbly uh, to you this morning, uh, thankful that you meet us in a room like this and that you, uh, you don't just say depend on some truisms or proverbs to get you through, but you give us yourself and you desire for us to be comforted, for us to be cared for. But God, we just go to a lot of broken cisterns. We go to a lot of broken things to try to find that comfort, to try to escape. God, would you forgive us? Would you forgive us? Maybe just take a moment and just ask for forgiveness. God, I've looked at so many other things besides you to um, be a, some sort of soothing balm to our state. But you've called us Children. You are our Father. And you've invited us and welcomed us into your family. That's our identity. So we take great joy and hope that you are working all of this out. That you see the beginning to the end. And you understand exactly what we need when we need it. So help us to trust you. Help us to wrestle well with our faith working out our salvation with fear and trembling as we run this race. We look to Jesus this morning. Uh, remind us that we can look to him every single day. We can have this encounter with him every single day, every single moment. You're not just here in this room, but you're everywhere. We love you and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.